Welcome to episode 27 of the Security Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated security business sector. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Security Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the security event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham from the 30th of April until the 2nd of May 2024. Security Matters is once again serving as the lead media partner for the exhibition. To register for this show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Turning to the news now, and the Security Institute has announced that Julie Nell, who was voted onto the board by the membership at the organisation's 2023 annual general meeting, will become chair of the Institute from Monday the 24th of July. Nell takes the reins from Peter Lavery, who will complete seven years on the board at the end of this year. Nell brings with her a wealth of senior leadership experience gained from an impressive 35-year career spanning the UK military, law enforcement, government and private sectors. She specialises in intelligence and strategic security threat management. Further, Nell has served as UK Law Enforcement Director of Intelligence and National Lead for Intelligence within His Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary and Fire and Rescue Services. In addition to her career, Nell harbours an impressive track record of voluntarily contributing to the security sector, including several years of service as a director of the Association of Security Consultants. She's a member of the Worshipful Company of Security Professionals and serves on the Women in Business Advisory Group and the London Business Crime Committee for the London Chambers of Commerce. Further, Nell is a member of the City Security Council and actively contributes to the sharing of intelligence between the private sector and the police service. Through time, Noel has supported numerous corporate security clients across a plethora of sectors including logistics, finance and legal, and also undertaken security projects for the UK government focused on delivering safe initiatives by developing and implementing threat monitoring for briefing senior officials. Noel is keen on identifying new talent from any generation or gender identity for the world of security through mentoring and assisting with internships or supporting those transferring from the military or the police into the private sector. On her appointment, Nell stated, It's a privilege to have been elected chair by the board of directors, all of whom have incredible levels of skill and experience within the security business sector. I'm looking forward to working alongside the board and the fantastic team at head office, led by our CEO, Angela Lawson. We're already in the process of finalising a revised strategy that will carry the Institute forward as a leading professional body for the security industry. Noel continued, The importance of security cannot be underestimated during these times of geopolitical uncertainty. Our strategy reflects the continued professionalisation and influence of our industry. Going forward, the Institute will continue to collaborate with key stakeholders. In conclusion, Nell observed, We thank Peter for his dedication and commitment to the Institute. Across the last seven years, Peter's leadership has driven and supported significant changes within the UK security landscape. Peter Lavery responded, I was delighted to see Julie Nell elected as the next chair of the Institute. The Institute will appreciate and benefit from a new chair and several new directors. There's renewed energy and ideas that will help to maintain the momentum of both growth and influence. The government has confirmed it's not persuaded that licensing businesses carrying out security services would deliver improvements in public safety proportionate to the significant increases in regulatory burdens that this would entail. Recently, Baroness Natalie Bennett of Manor Castle, a life peer representing the Green Party and a member of the House of Lords since October 2019, tabled a question in Parliament. Baroness Bennett asked His Majesty's Government what consideration it had given to introducing a registration or other form of oversight scheme for those companies providing security services in association with the introduction of Martin's Law, now officially introduced as the Terrorism Protection of Premises Bill. The question was then answered by Lord Andrew Sharp of Epsom, a life peer representing the Conservative Party, who was appointed Parliamentary Under Secretary of State at the Home Office on 20th of September last year. Lord Sharp's responsibilities focus on public safety, his national security shadow in the Lords, and also concentrates on national security legislation. In his response, Lord Sharp of Epsom stated, Volume 1 of the report produced by the Manchester Arena Inquiry recommended that consideration should be given to whether contractors who carry out security services should be required to be licensed. That's Recommendation 8. 
The government has given careful consideration to this matter and is not persuaded that licensing businesses in this way would deliver improvements in public safety that would be proportionate to the significant increases in regulatory burdens this would entail. Lord Sharp continued, Instead, the government has asked the Security Industry Authority, which regulates the private security industry, to consider how its voluntary approved contractor scheme can help to further drive quality standards in security provision. Separately, it emerges that the National Counterterrorism Office is looking to develop a voluntary competent person scheme. According to Lord Sharp, the competent person scheme will involve a competent person in the workplace qualification and the Counterterrorism Security Specialist Register. The latter, explained Lord Sharp, will recognise existing skills and qualifications within the sector, while also providing reassurances for businesses that a counter-terrorism specialist has the necessary skills to appropriately advise on risk and suitable mitigation measures. In its 76-page document entitled The Security Industry Authority Review 2016-2017, published back in June 2018, the Security Industry Authority asserted that, and I quote, much of the private security industry adopts high professional standards. Alongside discussion of the range of sanctions for proven transgressions of the Private Security Industry Act 2001 being limited at the time of the 2016-2017 review and the perception of minimal enforcement activity generating a lack of confidence in the regulator across some sectors of the industry, there was also a concise recommendation made in relation to business licensing. In the 2016-2017 review, that recommendation stated all businesses offering security services, whether operating under contract or operating in-house where there is a risk to public protection, safeguarding and national security, should be subject to a business licensing scheme linked to a system of private security industry standards on a mandatory basis. Business licenses should only be issued to companies who meet the revised approved contractor scheme standards. Much talk in the industry at the time, and indeed subsequently, has suggested that the process of accountability brought forward by business licensing would only serve to enhance standards still further and eventually erode, perhaps to the very point of extinction, the unwelcome cohort of companies continuing to trade without benefit of ACS registration. In real terms, it's fair to state that there has been very little in the way of parliamentary updates on the licensing regime post-2014. As mentioned, this situation has changed of late, to a degree at least, with the parliamentary question re-business licensing in relation to Martin's Law. It's perhaps of little surprise the government has referenced the fact that it's not persuaded on the need for such licensing, given that the Conservative Party isn't known to be in favour of what might be deemed by some to be unnecessary bureaucracy and red tape. Across the years, many industry practitioners have voiced the strong opinion that business licensing should have been the first port of call on the SIA's establishment, rather than the licensing of individuals. It's too late to turn back the clock, of course, but perhaps now, with the advent of the Terrorism Protection of Premises Bill, is the opportune juncture for the private security industry to crank up the volume, air its views on this matter, and what's more, make sure those views are heard as the proposed legislation is spread through the customary passage to the House of Lords. Our first guest on episode 27 of the Security Matters podcast is Pauline Nordstrom. Pauline is the founder of Anacanta Consulting and Anacanta AI and keenly focused on research and the ethical and trustworthy application of high-risk AI across a number of sectors, from civil security through to transportation and smart cities. Pauline has been building her business since early 2020, having gained over 20 years' experience in senior statutory board roles across a number of international businesses specialising in video surveillance and analytics for security and safety purposes. Further, Pauline is a former chair and now an honorary member of the British Security Industry Association. Back in 2012, Pauline presented evidence to the all-party parliamentary group for AI on the subject of the safe use of facial recognition software for national security, and did so again in January this year, representing the Institute of Directors and its position on board governance and accountability for AI technology based on Anacanta's own AI framework. During our interview, Pauline focuses her attentions on regulation in the artificial intelligence space and also touches on the subjects of generative artificial intelligence and artificial general intelligence.
Welcome to the Security Matters podcast, Pauline. In the wake of founding Alicanta Consulting, what led you to focus the business and its activities on artificial intelligence as a core subject area? Uh, yes, very good question, Brian. Um, and it's lovely to be speaking again, by the way. We've known each other for many years. Um, yes, so over 20 years ago, I was involved in early evaluations of AI used for security purposes, and I had this foundational interest in it. And, you know, 20 years ago, actually probably longer than that, uh, 23, 24 years ago, AIs were emerging. Uh, I worked with the BSIA to pioneer guidance in this area. We looked at the AIs. Uh, we worked with the Home Office. We created guidance, and it was pretty obvious at that time that the AIs were very narrow in their use case and uh, required a very sterile and controlled environment. That remained for some time, but I've been tracking the development of AI and, um, of course, worked in businesses that were bringing AI-based technology to market. And I could see this cycle of development and then pain when it came to AIs going out into the wild, as I say it, which is an uncontrolled environment. And there were difficulties at that time in building trust. So the AI-based technology typically got deployed where no other technology would solve the problem and the user was really prepared. Uh, and, the, and the installer, the integrator, they were all prepared to work with you know, the development company to help get the best outcome. And nevertheless, there's been a lot of caution around the use of these technologies. And it's only in recent years that uh, what I would describe as general purpose technologies, so those that are really needed to deliver effective AI, so silicon through to new coding techniques, availability of training data and, and communications networks. It's only until these technologies became uh, available that um, some more functional AI started to emerge. And my interest was sparked at that, reignited, shall we say, at that point. And um, I further reignited it by doing a course at University of Oxford, uh, which was their artificial intelligence programme, uh, which was a short course, but gave you a very, very deep and intensive grounding in the fundamentals of the new AI techniques, including uh, neural networks. And uh, I could really see, you know, there are lots of use case scenarios and a lot of risk and impact evaluation the ethical aspects of AI were considered. And we had to work through that as part of the course. And uh, having done that, um, I found, I started talking about it, I found that uh, those with the needs uh, really found me. And it was pretty obvious at that time that this was a, you know, these were solid foundations on which to build a business. So that's that's how I got to the point whereby I actually brought Anacanter Consulting to life. I'd already formed it several years ago and, and didn't feel the market was mature enough. So it was a great opportunity and things have been progressing very quickly since then. And in your view, Pauline, how will it advanced artificial intelligence impact and improve upon security provision in times to come? Substantially, in my view, uh, we've already seen basic AIs in use and they are very effective in the security process. But the new, the advanced AIs that are based on neural networks and also generative AI, um, I'll give you some examples. So uh, let's think about enhanced threat detection. So this is quite a difficult job uh, for technology. It's difficult for people um, because there are multiple data sources providing information that needs to be verified. Where AI can come into play is that it can correlate 
at source and sift through very quickly the relevance of the data and then deliver the outputs to the right people to act upon really quickly. And also, if you think about, you can come on to chat GPT later, but um, in terms of generative AIs, um, they may add even further value because they're very good at being the glue that joins together uh, the transfer of data between systems and systems that are now being used uh, for response, you know, on the front line, you know, WhatsApp and Slack and so on. And these AIs really enhance that. Object detection, which has uh, evolved, uh, it's now very good. Object detection is one of the fundamental AIs used in um, video analysis. And um, it's got better. The training data, the data sets have, have grown. And very good ob object detection uh, is now reducing the time to review events, increase accuracy, improve customer satisfaction, reduce loss and increase because of the trust that's being built because of its accuracy is increasing adoption of the technology. And then, you know, further afield, the, the technology is so good. Other parts of businesses are wanting to tap into the data. So we're seeing applications way beyond security uh, into traffic management, the flow of people through transportation networks, hotspots, crowd control, crowd management, and moving further, you know, from object detection to how that's enhanced facial recognition software. Been around a long time, a lot of these technologies have, but facial recognition software is now much more AI-based in that it's able to detect the best face, uh, best quality image, offer the best match. It's very accurate, certainly improved from where it was. We don't suggest that this technology should be used in isolation, but in a very controlled environment like verification for access control is more than adequate. Equally, you know, it can be, on, be used beyond the crowd control scenario and be used as the, the ticket for entry into a venue, for example. And then we look at moving further, you know, motion detection, a very controversial area, another biometric being collected. All sorts of experiments have been going on in terms of what the AI based technology may be able to do or not do. France has uh, brought this into the spotlight um, in that it has actually passed a law that will allow uh, certain types of biometric um, analysis of people and crowds for the Paris Olympics. So uh, there are lots of human rights issues there. And coming onto that subject, um, there is always a balance between the use of technology and concerns around too much automation and potential job loss. So it's the elephant in the living room for us. And we're not afraid to talk about it in reality, Brian, uh, because we realise that significant value can be brought through automation. Uh, but also, let's have a look at the impact on jobs. And, you know, some of the work we do with companies um, can result in us saying you really shouldn't do this because that entire team will be gone. I can't see any path through that would enable them to to actually, re you know, reskill, retrain. So we have to talk about this um, and not just charge ahead, uh, assuming that technology is good all round. Uh, in isolation, it can be good. But when you combine it with people, it can be the most effective uh, and it certainly shouldn't be used without people in certain uh, circumstances. Other risks, uh, we certainly look at uh, impact uh, on privacy and uh, that comes into play when technology is being integrated into other systems. And, um, you know, the privacy consideration is kind of flipped into reverse when the outputs of security AIs are used for some other purpose. And that opens up a whole new conversation about uh, what is this new purpose and how is it going to impact? So it's actually stimulating a whole load of conversations within organisations, not just about how good the technology might be at performing a task, but also how the humans interact with it. Uh, and uh, learn to do a good job of that and also how it's governed. So lo lots going on. 
And when it comes to regulation, how do you feel this will alter the risk considerations around artificial intelligence in the security space? I think it will have some substantial impact in reality, and those are mainly coming from the EU at this stage, but kind of take it up a level to what's happening globally. No doubt um, many of the listeners will have heard about the talks between US and UK regarding some kind of global AI safety authority. Those talks are in the early stages. There's going to be a summit in autumn in the UK to consider that, but that's very high level. And in the meantime, all this AI technology is flooding the market without any controls. UK government's task force may come up with some good suggestions. Another 100 million has gone into that. But what we're seeing, so the regulatory position, is emerging almost at grassroots level uh, and the technologies are being controlled and regionally managed. And by that, I mean uh, certain states in America have already put um, what are known as ordinances, which are kind of like bylaws in place to control certain types of technology, usually facial recognition software, but not limited to that. So these these specific pieces are related to the use cases. And um, we always felt that actually there need to be overarching regulation and that also has to be sectoral. Otherwise, we're seeing OECD popping up over the place. They pioneered trustworthy principles. We're seeing those in uh, numerous uh, regulatory documents. And then focusing in on the security AI. So we're seeing security-based AIs, uh, so used for the security purpose, and not really protected in the way they are in GDPR. We're seeing this emerging as a new consideration for security users. The risk associated with these technologies is actually at a fundamental human rights level, and that's raising a whole load of new conversations in terms of uh, what impacts might be and which laws are actually emerging that might affect that. The UK position is well underway. Let's say skirted around facial recognition software, which is probably the most controversial AI used in security. There's some sector guidance. Um, ICO refers to GDPR. So there's bits of legislation, of course, BSIA pioneered in this area and created guidance for the ethical and legal use of recognition software. And um, that was prior to UK government releasing their you know, AI regulation policy paper. Uh, and a new standard will come out um, shortly, again, pioneered by the BSIA, but that will come through BSI. So that's a very specific use of AI. And then otherwise, for the wider landscape, the AIs, which are video and let's say joining other data sets, uh, we see other than a kind of sectoral approach. So the sector regulators picking up pieces of it uh, and um, considering the foundational principles of trust. But this needs to accelerate a bit. So it's uh, there's a lot being done in the background. And there is a new cooperation forum, which is the Digital Regulation Cooperation Forum, uh, which brings together the digital regulators. And they're doing some great work in terms of creating some sort of harmony. In contrast, you know, EU has been very specific about what it wanted to do with regulation. And this will really, really impact in on the security AIs. So the EU AI Act, you everybody's an expert on this on LinkedIn now but actually there's an awful lot more below the surface than um, anyone could possibly imagine who's coming into this fresh. It was derived from the real impacts of AI in Europe uh, and the need to never repeat these issues such as the Dutch government issue. Uh, They effectively, for those who don't know, they very effectively automated using AI racial profiling within the child welfare system and the system automatically issued fines 
to those who were of dual nationality uh, and made mistakes on on the forms. And that was correlated to be, well, that must be fraudulent, so we'll find them. And that that prevailed for about five years. The, the AI wasn't explainable. Nobody would challenge it. They didn't know how it worked. And when it was eventually discovered, Amnesty International did a report on it and the Dutch government said, OK, this is obviously unacceptable. And the entire government resigned. So there were huge learnings from that. And these are some of the, let's say, the use cases that have underpinned this legislation. It's going to become law in all the states. It categorises AI into prohibited high risk, minimal low risk. And that's on the basis of the impact on the health and safety and for rights of EU citizens. Uh, and it covers cross-sectoral and vertical requirements. And importantly, we've evaluated this piece of legislation and uh, many of the security AI sit in the high risk category, uh, which will require additional pre-market assessments, post-market CE marking, certain requirements that the entire supply chain needs to undertake from the developer through to who puts it onto the market to the user who is defined as the deployer of that technology. Uh, and those AIs include biometric categorization, which y- you shouldn't be surprised to hear that, but that's any kind of categorization on the basis of uh, emotion, gait, voice, and so on, and obviously facial recognition technology. Use cases in certain scenarios, such as workplace monitoring. So we're seeing security AIs kind of moving crosses the bridge into the wider sort of building management, smart cities, smart buildings, workplace management and so on. And these all will be impacted. And from, from our perspective, and certainly what I know about the industry, providers and users of this kind of technology, they really want clear guidelines because it, it's something that they can create some uniformity around in terms of what their service offering is, and they can learn how to support it and learn how to mitigate problems that arise. At the moment, I describe the AI regulatory landscape pre-EU AI Act as a little bit of the Wild West. There's technology being uh, introduced all over the place, and the buyer is confused about you know what it will actually do. How do they monitor it, measure it? How do they assess ethical impact? How do they govern it? Should this be a board consideration and so on? So it's without regulation, it's it's down to the interests of the company developing. Uh, and there are some frameworks. UK has um, a voluntary framework, which is sitting in CDEI, which is very good. And it suggests look at the global standards. So I think it will eventually all centre back to a similar set of principles. But at the moment, I would say the EU uh, and the AI Act is, is definitely winning the race. And continuing that theme, Pauline, what are your views on the UK's approach to regulating artificial intelligence versus, say, the approach adopted by the European Union, which you mentioned? Very good question. And um, they are they couldn't be further apart. They're poles apart in terms of approach. The UK seems to be adopting a wait and see approach. Uh, there's a lot of language in there in the, uh, the white paper, which suggests we should just look at real risks, real risks as in, well, we know about risk management, don't we, in this sector where it's already happened. It's possible to map the probability and severity and likelihood of it happening again. The approach in the UK doesn't really consider the hypothetical risks that we may want to model, the scenarios that may emerge. Uh, Those have have kind of been pushed to one side a little bit. They've not been ignored entirely. That does concern me that those potential risks are not really considered right now. The approach is very much based on principles, uh, which is good. And those are kind of based on OECD, except there's absolutely no mention of the environment in there. And of course, there are uh, those of us looking at, well, what is the processing power of all this AI? Is that really benefiting the environment or not? You know, is it sustainable? 
So the principles, the, the idea is there. The definition of AI is different to everything that we've seen elsewhere. So there is a standard which defines AI. Um, it's 22989, if you're interested. That's, that definition has been derived from OECD. The OECD definition has then been adopted in the EU AI Act. And then you've, you've got some consistency. But the UK, you know, as I mentioned, the standards approach, that is good. And there's a sort of common thread running through there. EU is is saying do this very specific do these things if you use if you develop if you provide if it is an AI that could cause significant substantial harm to individuals you're not allowed to use it if there's a risk of harm high risk of harm let's have some checks and measures monitoring of its use because AIs can change during their life cycle depending on what data you throw at them we're, we're very keen on the EU AI Act as you probably tell from my comments about this and um, I would really like to see the UK maybe getting on the front foot with this and being a bit more proactive. And, uh, you know, this is in light of the really, really high functional capability of the generative AIs that have recently emerged. So very different approaches, but uh, it does look as if there is a movement towards some sort of global harmony, and I hope that will be soon. And finally, Pauline, is there any cause for concern in relation to generative artificial intelligence and also artificial general intelligence? Yes. So I do believe there is concern. These are very good technologies. So the generative AIs are those which sit at the heart of chat, uh, GPT and Bard and, and Llama. So these are created by big tech who have been in reality developing AI-based technology since their platforms came to market. They are based on AI. They are kind of understood, <laughs> shall I say, but the the movement into artificial general intelligence. So what, what are we talking about there? Are we talking about the singularity, as it's described, you know, sentience. My belief is we're a long way off that, but we may get fooled by the generative AI, which is very convincing. It's been designed to sound like a human. And um, there's been a lot of anthropomorphization um, to uh, try to make it have a character and a soul. Well, of course, it's just numbers at the end of the day. It's a prediction engine and it can't feel and it can't even think. In fact, these technologies don't know whether they're right or not. So uh, if you ask it whether it's telling the truth, it's say, of course, and I can give you all these facts to back up the argument and those facts will potentially be generated just to fill the space and because the reason why it can do that is because it's literally a prediction engine so it predicts the best or most likely word that would come next uh, based on its learnings which are essentially as I describe it quite crudely it's hoovered up the internet and um, problem with the internet is unless you go and check and you check your sources and as you know a, a journalist you'll know all about this let's we need to get to the you know where is the ground truth in all of this chat gpt and bard and so on they don't know what ground truth is so if you're using this technology the person using it needs to know ground truth which is why we we recommend that specialists actually it's good for generating fast results but a specialist in that field that knows the answer really really must check of course we're seeing the creation of new jobs now brian so there is uh, the concept of the prompt engineer which is emerging, which is a specially trained engineer whose job is solely to design queries to return the best results from the generative AI. So, yeah, there are some concerns there, but there are lots of benefits as well. And if you think about 
what we know about facial recognition software, for example. The training data has been a very big problem for developers and in terms of the quality, also the diversity of it and uh, representing the, the full demographic, but also um, whether that data is consented. And, you know, we've heard about Clearview AI who, who fell into a trap with GDPR and got a huge fine because they just took images from the internet uh, with the names and made their database that way. And it seemed, well, it's public, but then actually it's not public. <laughs> so uh, they learned a lot from that and they've done lots of good work to show that actually we are now vetting the customer where we're not doing these things that we were fined for. But the flip side of that is, you know, looking at the problem, where do you get your data from? Uh, generative AIs can create synthetic data, which um, just generates faces in different demographics. And um, that's a really good, good use to help improve the quality and reduce bias in facial recognition software. But um, there's a flip side to everything in terms of the dark side of technology. Uh, when something can be used for good, it can always be used for bad. And there will be people who want to do harm. Uh, very intelligent people, by the way, as we know, criminals are not necessarily um, behind all of us, are usually ahead. But um, the dark side of this is certainly for the industry is to be concerned about deep fakes. And I talk about this a lot in terms of this this risk becoming a reality for anyone that has watched the, um, I think it was BBC programme, The Capture. I was watching this programme thinking this isn't far off. You know, the real time nature of, you know, this scenario, which was to swap uh, live video feeds from video surveillance with altered deep fake video that showed a criminal in the scene or someone who's being framed appearing in a scene. And that's used as evidence in court. We're not far off this and uh, have a real concern that only a matter of time before a real person will be impersonated and they'll be convicted on the basis of video data. You're seeing a lot of digital evidence now in the court system and um, that can be the only evidence. So how do you actually know whether it's a deep fake or not? And this is where the industry is coming up with some technical solutions with regard to tracing the source of the data. And actually, we always used to talk about having some kind of watermark or digital fingerprint in that data. That's even more important now. So um, it, it, it's a concern, but also other measures are needed. And, you know, we're looking at thinking outside the security sphere and moving into robust cybersecurity management, the right measures have to be in place, audits, you know, pen testing and so on, depending on the uh, the risk level, but also having uh, governance systems in place in businesses that raise these issues to the accountable individuals who, you know, probably the board and they should take an active role because they could inadvertently propagate the use of this technology in a bad way. So there's kind of a mixed answer here, Brian. It's yes, it can be used in very good ways, but be aware it can create very misleading results. And it sounds very convincing. You need to challenge it. It's great for creating synthetic data, but it can also create synthetic people and synthetic evidence. So um, I think this is about education and awareness and um, certainly provides an opportunity for security professionals to actually prove, you know, how professional they are in terms of being able to go in and ask the right questions of that user in terms of what measures are they willing to put in place, have they got in place and are prepared to continue to monitor during the use of the technology. Returning to the news now, and distributors operating in the security industry are at risk of being left behind unless they work harder to reassert their position within the supply chain. That's the stark warning from Evolution, the integrated fire and security systems business, which believes that distributors could benefit from much closer working relationships with integrators and other partners in order to better understand the technology they're selling and, in tandem, the real value it can deliver. 
For a long time now, asserted Brendan McGarrity, Director of Evolution, Risk and Design, the security industry has followed a distinct pattern of manufacturers, distributors and installers working in the same supply chain. These traditional models are swiftly being abandoned, with distributors slowly squeezed out of the industry as the end user becomes more informed. McGarrity continued, Unless they take action now, there's a very real danger of distributors being considered, unfairly in many instances, as little more than box shifters and viewed as a necessary but irritating barrier to a more productive conversation. Distributors are being urged by McGarrity to fight back. He stated, They still have a vital role to play within the security supply chain, and long may that situation continue, but they do need to be more assertive and more aligned with the systems integrators whom they serve. Not everything in a systems business can be commoditized. Individual components within a total system represent only a small part of the total cost. McGarrity firmly believes that distributors need to make this clear, and particularly so when dealing with procurement managers who appear to know the cost of everything, but are somewhat hazier on the value. They also need to support arguments in favour of the total cost of ownership as opposed to a single transactional price, suggested McGarrity. On that note, McGarrity informed Security Matters, a camera is not just a camera, rather it can be a critical element of a wider system whose value, therefore, is more important than its unit price. I can always find you a cheaper camera and distributors will sell you one, but the true cost of doing so is not always understood and may only be truly known when the camera fails. According to McGarrity, the truth of the matter is that all of the parties involved in the supply management chain need each other. He concluded, Clients are driving change and that has to be a good thing. It's only right to be challenged. To best serve their needs, serious integrators will need to work even harder with their manufacturing partners and distributors in order to truly understand the technology that's available and the real value it can deliver for the end customer as well as the host organisation. The Information Commissioner's Office has issued a formal reprimand to the Ministry of Justice after confidential waste documents were left in an unsecured prison holding area. Prisoners and staff had access to the 14 bags of confidential documents, which included medical and security vetting details, for a period of 18 days. During this period, staff challenged prisoners who were openly reading the documents, but did nothing proactive in order to ensure that the personal information involved was secured. At least 44 individuals had access to the information, which had remained on site as a contracted shredder waste removal company had not collected the materials as scheduled. The ICO's extensive investigation uncovered a lack of robust policies at the prison, including no pre-agreed areas for staff to leave confidential waste in a secure place, staff being unaware of the need to shred information or the risks of allowing prisoners access to non-shredded confidential documents, inaccurate records of the number of staff who had completed data protection training, and a general lack of staff understanding of the risk to personal data and the need to report data breaches. Steve Eckersley, the ICO's Director of Investigations, commented, Everyone has the right to expect their personal details will be kept secure, and this includes in a prison environment, where the exposure of personal information could potentially have serious consequences. Eckersley continued, Whether documents are consigned to waste or not, they must be handled securely and responsibly. We expect both the prison concerned and the Ministry of Justice to continue to take steps to improve practices that will ensure people are protected. The reprimand details a number of required or recommended actions, including a thorough review of all data protection policies, procedures and guidance to ensure they're adequate and up-to-date with legislation, and the creation of a separate data breach reporting policy for members of staff. The Ministry of Justice is also required to provide the ICO with a progress report by the end of October. This is the 45th reprimand to have been published on the ICO's website, detailing how the work of the organisation is making sure people's information rights are protected. 
previous examples include ensuring that a review led to a new policy being introduced at an NHS trust, which then stopped the standard practice of sending out group emails, in turn significantly reducing the risk of emails being sent to the wrong individual. There was also the implementation of improved technical measures at an independent advisory body in order to better guard against future attempts of unlawful access to IT systems. In addition, there was an instance of the ICO insisting that people's subject access requests made to a government department were actioned within the statutory timescale. Further, procedures were reviewed and updated at a local council to prevent the disclosure of personal details to opposing parties in child protection legal proceedings. Last but not least, a decommissioning policy was implemented and adhered to at an NHS hospital to make sure that personal details would not be lost when a filing system was terminated. Now, our second guest on this edition of the podcast is Mark Wall, the Managing Director of Wall to Wall Security, the company offering bespoke and targeted sales and marketing support across the security business sector. Through time, Mark has served in several security-focused roles, including Business Development Manager at Bidicon and Sales Director at WebEye. He's also worked as an Account Director at Amberstone Security. Having diligently served the security business sector for three decades now, Mark founded Wall-to-Wall Security in July last year, and the business is going from strength to strength. During our conversation, Mark looks at the current state of the security market and also turns his attentions towards the relationship between building design and security and how that will evolve in times ahead. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Mark. How did the Wall-to-Wall group materialise and what made you start the business? Uh, thanks for having me, Brian. Uh, yes, it was really just seeing a gap in the market. I think just to combine my love of sales and marketing um, to to one of my favourite programmes, uh, I love the chase. So it it was sort of a, an easy thing to set up in, in you know in the grand scheme of things. I've built up quite a following on LinkedIn. I've got quite a few obviously connections, and uh, I, I was hoping that that would sort of help support me with you know sort of being able to sort of make a bit of a difference. But um, above all, it was about uh, having a vision uh, to support the security industry and, and promote products within it. Um, there's a lot of people that have got some amazing products, and as I say, the the nutty professor, but they've got these great products but can't get it out to market. And um, and I hope that's where we come in our clients do all the techie bit and we do the sales it's a dream team mentality i suppose but uh, yeah that was the main reason behind it all really and having attended recent trade shows in the industry mark it's apparent that the wall-to-wall group is very busy just now how's everything going for you at the moment it's going really well. We we had, um, or well, my vision initially was just to be able to support myself um, with just a couple of customers who I'd reached out to before um, be, before actually setting this up. That quickly turned into uh, three, four. You know, I think we're we're sort of we've always been in around sort of ten because it's it's manageable. But yeah, so we're coming up to our first year anniversary next month. We've done two exhibitions. We're looking after new starters such as uh, Pinnacle Systems which have got this great platform that can monitor every single system to establish global companies such as uh, Suprema. I did a post recently about having imposter syndrome, but yeah, it feels like that because people are wanting to, to sort of buy what we're doing and they love the services that we can we can sort of provide uh, within the team. And what are your views on the current state of the security market? Definitely a lot going on. Uh, we need to stay one, uh, yeah, one real stepper ahead. Different ways to to sort of market product solutions. I think, as we all know, AI uh, analytics, cloud-based solutions, biometrics. It's really exciting concepts at the minute, and what it offers the industry is is just phenomenal. You know, it's it's. I, I was amazed 
when I was working for one of our uh, well, one of one of the distributors back in the day, and you know, we we went from uh, analog to HD, and we're definitely going that way now with the um, with the tech that's coming through. So um, I think it's exciting times for everybody. And how do you see the relationship between building design and security evolving in the years ahead? I think we've all heard the phrase future proofing. I think now more than ever, security needs to be considered uh, at a much um, earlier stage. I think many installers will tell you that they're probably the last ones to get called in. And, and that can be at, at a stage where it's needed more than ever to be designed to, to connect to all devices. Whether that's new build, you know, refurbishments, everyone really has to talk. I think it will help resources, um, remote monitoring that can be accessed anywhere, anytime. In your opinion, how do you think the distribution market is changing in the light of digital, online and social media, Mark? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, everybody has to evolve in the uh, in the game of social media. I think we've uh, we've we've all got to look at social media as being the next or, or is the way to to be able to get out there and promote products face to face and and demonstrations is obviously key but we we have to make awareness of it through through any social media we can whether that's data driven insights looking at you know uh, what's what's needed what the industry is looking for you know sort of trends in the market e-commerce obviously is a big thing but it has to be interesting for people to read you know and and and, and I think that's the the sort of key that we're looking at looking at opportunities to collaborate we take other manufacturers that we're working with and we offer solutions to our customer base um, from our clients that that probably they're looking for but we we bring in everybody to support that rather than it being well that you know the customer needs to take this and take that we, we hopefully are becoming a sort of one-stop shop and i hope that's how the industry looks at it you can have a thousand products on your shelf but if it doesn't all tie in together then you're only going to be selling one or two but if we tie these things in together i think that's the the sort of way forward and again you know with some of the clients with their products we've taken on board that's key to us we, we we look for that we've got a battery manufacturer we've got a sim card provider all of that is is needed for most security companies these days and then we've got the software we've got smokescreen we've got everything it just ties in together but you know i know if a customer calls we can provide either one two or, or seven of our clients with uh, with the result that the customers needs and finally, Mark, and based on your own experiences, what advice would you give to anyone who's thinking about starting a new security business? So just do it. It's been a roller coaster for the last 10, 11 months. Um, support from your network is is massive. You know, I've got some great people that have sort of backed me and, and been there for me when I'm going to say when the chips were down and I wasn't myself. They've always, always offered. I mean, I'll, I'll mention one just because um, Carl Meeson was, was just, you know, kept plugging at me, you know, just do it, just do it. You know, you can do it. You've got a great network. You can do it. And and, and having that support was was just yeah, just unreal. You know, having my daughter. So having your family behind you is obviously, uh, and she is my biggest inspiration, as as you know, people will know. You know, I think she's uh, key to this, and and obviously her name's on the door as well. You know, so I hope she'll be uh, looking at it and seeing um, that you know what we've created is good, and and give her the confidence to say she can just go and just do it. As Nike says, it's all about embracing skill sets, using using. Um, tools around you getting knowledge from people that have set up successful businesses but also giving back i suppose as well you know making sure that when other people are 
uh, are looking to, you know, or thinking about it, that they can ring one of us or speak to one of us and just say, yeah, what do you reckon? And and I think that's key to make sure people know that they're not alone. It's, but it is, it can be lonely. It really can. But um, if you've got a dream, just just go and do it. It's it's it'll be the best thing you ever did. And, and I think more importantly, and the team will tell you that I probably don't do this, but I am starting to realise. Um, I think you've just got to take care of yourself. Starting a new business really is demanding physically, mentally. And I hope, you know, the sort of team are listening. I will start to do this. But at the minute, you're 100 miles an hour or I'm 100 miles an hour. And I think um, you've just got to step back sometimes and go, it's okay. The team's got it. They know what they're doing. And if you're on your own, obviously, I know that's difficult. But speak to your family. Speak to your speak to your friends. So you're not alone. Remember, keep the you know the body fit and the noggin noggin uh, in a good state. And I think you know, as long as you've got the passion, you'll you'll do it. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Security Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Pauline Nordstrom of Anacanta Consulting and also Mark Wall from Wall to Wall Security for their highly valued contributions. Many thanks also to our podcast sponsor, The Security Event. The Security Event runs from the 30th of April until the 2nd of May 2024 at the NEC in Birmingham. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Don't forget to visit our website at www.securitymattersmagazine.com where you can access all of our podcasts and also read the latest news and opinion from the security business sector. You can view our dedicated features content and sign up to receive our very popular weekly news bulletins. Please do contact us if there are any key themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming editions of the podcast. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag SecurityPod. On that note, make sure you follow us on Twitter at WBMSecMatters and access our LinkedIn page at Security Matters magazine and website. Please do like and share the podcast content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Security Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. To download the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, all you need to do is enter the term Security Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time.